Hi, and welcome to the West Visalia Audio Podcast. Each message is designed to help you grow and inspire you to take action. Please take a moment to hit the subscribe button, and don't be shy to drop us a message if you have a question. Thanks for listening, and God bless. All right, well, we are in the book of John, so if you want to open up your Bibles there, we will get started into the text. Um, Kenny tried to push me out of class, but I pushed him off the podium, so we're good to go. But as you recall, as we go through this magnificent gospel, first off, the word gospel means good news in its most basic sense, but we refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John usually as the gospels. Don't overthink that because you also hear people say gospel preacher, gospel music, gospel this. People just use that word for a catch-all word for Christian, you know, nowadays. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are each biographies of Jesus. These people were eyewitnesses to Jesus, and they wrote down what they saw, what Jesus did, and what they were a part of so that the world could learn about Christ. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all wrote about the middle of the first century, whereas John is toward the end of the first century. So John's audience is a little bit different. John's content is a little different too. Not contradictory, but depending on the audience, you're always going to emphasize something different about, you know, the story. If I took a trip um, and somewhere and I got back home, what I'm going to tell Zinni about the trip versus what I'm going to tell my son Owen might be different. With Zinni, I might talk about, hey, it cost us a little bit more on our budget or this or that. With Owen, I might mention, hey, I saw this brand new Corvette on the way there. The Corvette interests Owen, how much it costs interests Zinni. You know, understand that kind of thing. Uh, well, with John, John is trying to get some of these Christians toward the end of the first century to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Because a lot of them weren't there when Jesus was on this earth. They're not eyewitnesses to that fact. And there's probably false teaching that's going around. And now you have second, third generation Christians. There's all sorts of that going on. So John presents his gospel as almost kind of like a courtroom scene with a bunch of witnesses to this fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Key verse of the book, John chapter 20. And if you haven't underlined it yet, please do that. And at the first chip page of the book, um, reference it. But John 20, 30 and 31 says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. Man, I wish they were, right? Um, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John makes it very clear that the reason he records what he records is to get us to believe in the believing in Jesus we might have life in his name. So it's not just a historical retelling but there is a direction to it to try to prove a point, a specific point about Jesus, that he is the son of God and that we might believe in him. Well, last week we left off in chapter four, or sorry, chapter five, with Jesus at this pool of Bethsaida. And there's this strange healing that takes place, and we had a dialogue with that. And there was a man that was um, next to the pool and that every day he tried to get down the water to be healed. He couldn't always do that because he's crippled. Jesus comes to him and heals him, and it's a magnificent event. Well, we're going to pick up then verse 8, kind of where we left off, where Jesus heals him. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. First off, with this miracle, I love the fact that it's very immediate. It's immediately he got up, he picked up his pallet and walked. Why is that significant, at least from a 
uh, a proving that Jesus is a son of God kind of angle. It didn't take any time. He has great ability, yeah? It's against all nature. Now, if Jesus came up to him and uh, grabbed his leg, twisted his leg, a big pop happened, and all of a sudden the guy's like, oh, hey, I can walk. He'll be like, well, hold on here. Jesus is just a doctor or a chiropractor or something like that, right? But no, this is a guy that, or it's not like, and then over time, the man healed. No, it was immediately it happened. Um, going against nature, going against how bodies work, that's not how it works. Also, if you've been crippled for a very long time and you automatically just get healed from our human standards, are you usually able to walk right away? No. People go to like physical therapy and all that kind of stuff to relearn how to do different movements because things atrophy, right? They don't work the same way. So this is definitely a big miracle as John is presenting it here. But John also mentions, though, that this happened on the Sabbath day. We might be thinking as an outsider here, we're like, okay. But to a Jewish person, that is significant. Why? Okay, nothing is supposed to be done on the Sabbath. Now, there is commands in the Old Testament that the Sabbath day is to be a day where you don't work, right? It is there. The Jewish people, many of them at this time, took that to very much an extreme as well. To like the point that, well, if your grandma fell outside of your house, you can't help her up to Monday kind of thing, or, or Sunday, because, you know, that's working. Sorry, Granny, you got to stay the night outside. Okay, they, they took it to an extreme that it wasn't supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be this test of your faithfulness to see how rigid and how perfect you could do like all right I'm going to control my breathing because if I breathe more than twice in a minute then I'm working I mean, people get extreme with it so that's in the background of this it is based upon a command you're not supposed to work on a sabbath but they took it a little far and also Jesus always throughout his ministry wants people to realize that sabbath is not supposed to be necessarily you trying to please God it's for your own benefit the rest and think about God. Also, God always values mercy over sacrifice. If you got a way, well, keeping the Sabbath and not working versus helping another person, God wants you to help the other person. And Christians can even get this way too. We get weird and legalistic about stuff sometimes. You know, we could be like, driving the church on Sunday and someone's waving you down and says, help, help, my car broke down or I need your help. You're like, sorry, I'll be late for church. God's up there in heaven going, stop it, right? I mean, he wants us to care about other people. But here we go. It says, now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying, verse 10 of John uh, 5, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Think about, this is how goofy legalism takes you sometimes. So this man is healed. Jesus says, pick up your pallet and walk, because if you can walk now, you don't need to lay down on the ground all day on that blanket down there or whatever. So common sense says you pick it up and take it with you, right? I mean, you don't want to litter outside this pool. So Jesus tells him, pick up your pallet and walk. The man does it, and these Jewish people said, oh, you cannot pick up your pallet on, and walk on a Sabbath day. What does that tell us first and foremost about their attitude? Yeah, Jesus just healed a guy. This guy is able to walk, 
and you're nitpicking about whether or not he picked up his pallet on the Sabbath day. Hold up, guys. You're missing what you just saw. Do you not see what's going on around you? You know, the miracle that just took place, they got these blinders on. They're like, no, 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 all I see is Sabbath, okay? So he answered them, verse 11. He who made me, or the, the man did, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Later, Jesus finds him, and we'll talk more about this. So this miracle is done almost in this like flippant, passing way, because that's how much power Jesus has. So Jesus says, pick up your pallet and walk, and the man, okay, and doesn't, he's able to walk, and then crowds happen, people are there, accusations about the Sabbath and all of that. They go, who told you to pick up? Because now we're going to condemn the guy who told you to work because he's not supposed to tell you to work. So if he tells you to pick up your pallet, whether or not he healed you, that don't matter. And the man goes, I, I don't know where he went because there was a crowd there and Jesus slipped away. Now, there's a lot there to maybe unpack a little bit, but this seems to be kind of typical for Jesus sometimes. We saw it a lot in our class through um, last year in the book of Matthew, where Jesus doesn't always want the attention. And there's times and place where he does. He's working his own timeline. But here, he slips away. I don't know why. I mean, I, can't, I have theories and stuff. Maybe it's just because it's not time for that kind of persecution to happen. Or maybe it's because he wants that dialogue to take place. Maybe so that way the people can just give the glory to God. I don't know. But he slips away. And he's not there as these accusations are being made. Questions and comments up through verse 13. Yeah, and that's kind of the, the position I take. If you didn't hear Tom, Tom says he always thinks that maybe this is Jesus' way of, it's not his time yet to go to the cross to be killed and all that. So by Jesus in sometimes revealing himself here and other times hiding or slipping away, I don't like using the word hiding, it keeps the timeline on his terms. So that way it doesn't rush to the cross or delay the cross and that kind of thing. Yes, Don. Yeah, let people think what they're going to think. Go about your business, and that's kind of what Jesus does here. Yeah. Yvonne says it kind of reminds us of our theme about waiting upon the Lord as we renew our strength and stuff, and that here we're waiting, and Jesus has his own timeline that he is trying to further. Well, let's keep going then. So the man doesn't know where Jesus is. Jesus slips away. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So this man is now in the temple there, and Jesus finds him, comes up to him, and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. I love this little dialogue here, this little blurb in verse 14. This man wasn't a necessarily a believer, a disciple, a holy guy or anything like that. Jesus just saw opportunity to do good to somebody. And he did that good. He healed him. But later, he offered him spiritual teaching and said, hey, change your life. Because something worse can happen to you than being you know, crippled. Because sins will cost us our soul. And that's more important than whether or not even we can walk. But I like how Jesus does that. He, he does a kind act, and then he steps away for a little while. But then when the opportunity is better, Jesus goes up and has a conversation with this person about 
his life, about his soul, about right and wrong, sin, and that kind of idea. Because he says, look, something worse than a sickness is going to happen. You might lose, you know, eternity if you don't change. I think there's a lot there we can learn about how we deal with people. Um, Sometimes, you know, we've talked about this before in even church leadership meetings, that maybe we can jump the gun when it comes to trying to teach people, whereas maybe we need to do some good to people, create that relationship, and the dialogue's going to happen. I mean, Christians are gung-ho sometimes, and sometimes we're a little bit overzealous, and, you know, we can run up to somebody and go, I know you're crippled, but what you really need to know right now is that you need to have your sins washed away, so let's get baptized. Here's a pool. They're like, hold up, I can't even walk. You know what I mean? So Jesus goes up to the guy, heals the guy, and then tells him later, hey, don't sin. Change your life, you know, do what's right because, you know, something worse can happen to you. There's a time and a place for everything when it comes to trying to reach out to people. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just do good to people. Do something nice for somebody. Yeah, but what if they don't know the truth? They might not right now, but be nice to them. And opportunities will arise to teach. And even if they don't, they did see that you did good and they know the good or whose name you did it in. Questions or thoughts? We don't know what sins he had or that kind of thing? Well, we don't know what sins this guy had in his life at all. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, we don't know. I have, we don't know anything about the background of this guy. I mean, yeah, he's crippled, but he could have been a nasty person. We don't know, okay? Uh, maybe he cusses at everybody as they walk by. I don't know. But um, so Jesus tells him sin or don't sin or so nothing worse happens. There might be a play on the idea that of the belief system you're kind of saying that if you sin, something bad happens to you physically, that kind of thing. I don't know. I think the common teaching of the day was the reason you have bad physical ailments is because you have bad things in your spiritual life. Kind of you sin, therefore bad things happen. Jesus never supports that idea from what I see in scripture, but he does use that idea to create dialogue. Remember with the blind man later on, who sinned, he or this man or his parents and that kind of thing. So I think he's taking maybe an assumption that people had of, oh, he sinned, therefore he did this. And Jesus goes, no, you still have sins in your life and get rid of those or something way worse than this is gonna happen. So sins didn't cause your crippledness, but sins can cause something worse. So he was healed even when he was still a sinner as well. Is that kind of where you're getting at with it? Okay, good, good question though. Other thoughts? Yeah, Don. He did the good thing for him. It was between he and him. He backed away so he didn't get a whole bunch of attention. Like, everybody look at me. I just helped this guy. And then, so now there's trust. There's kindness. There's intrigue a little bit. And now when Jesus comes in, he's able to talk to him and tell him to not sin anymore. Also is a pattern for us, too. We do have a responsibility to teach people about sin. But you need to develop that relationship and trust first, too. If I just come up to somebody and tell them, stop sinning, and they're like, who are you? I don't know you. I don't trust you. You're, I mean, you just kind of come across like one of them judgmental weirdos. They're not going to want to listen to you. But if you're a nice person, you help them out. They know that they can trust you. You're like, Jesus, you healed some guy. Okay, then they might listen to what you have to say. You're kind of the real deal there. Yeah, that completeness, that, yeah. So John might be emphasizing here that 
that what was lacking in this guy's life was not the ability to walk, but what was lacking was what only what Jesus could provide, which is spiritual healing. Yeah, and not the living water that was talked about in the chapter previously. Yeah, there's a lot there. And John, as me and Curtis have talked about before, I know we mentioned it here, there's all these different layers in John. And the more you go, it's like, oh, this ties into this and this and this. It's beautiful how it works together. I also want to mention Curtis Brent brought something around that kind of, um, you know, stuck with me too. John emphasizes the reactions of these people when they see the healing and the questions that they ask of the man. The people in the audience, yeah, they're, they're challenging, they don't agree, they don't follow, but they see that something happens and they're not disciples, but they yet they attest to what happened, which in a courtroom type setting and that kind of thing, that might be a, a pretty credible witness. A person who doesn't even believe in Jesus saying, yeah, something really weird happened. You know what I mean? That makes something, I mean, if you're watching some program and there's a people that are part of this belief system and they're telling you why that belief system is true, you go, yeah, but that's because you, you're part of that. But someone over here, that's why when you're reading books about like arguments for the existence of God, the ones that are written by like non-Christians sometimes carry the most weight because they don't have an agenda Maybe. We have an agenda. I want people to believe in God because I want them to go to heaven, okay? But this guy over here doesn't have that agenda, so sometimes his arguments have more weight. Yes? Okay, well, let me... Okay, I'm not there yet. Okay. All right, so let's keep going then. So Jesus found the man, told him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The man does the preaching or the evangelism there and the spreading of the name of Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to because he tells this man who he is and this man goes out there and spreads it. And even for us, we should go out there and do good deeds to people, but the ultimate goal is that they go out there then and spread the name of Jesus. This man does it. He goes out there and tells the people. Jesus isn't even seeking that attention right now. And he tells the Jews, verse 16, for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So we have this sign that takes place. Jesus heals this man, and you have this interaction with him, and then we kind of have that this question is, how are you going to respond to this sign, to this miracle? You have the blind, or not the blind, but the crippled man who goes away preaching the name of Jesus, basically. But the Jewish people here they didn't respond the same way. When they heard about the sign, when they heard about who did it, what did they start to do? Verse 16. Persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They couldn't see the forest or the trees or wherever they say it, right? And um, they couldn't see through the fact that Jesus is doing something amazing. All they saw was Jesus is going against what we think should happen on the Sabbath. You know, I've had, this, I've had conversations like this before, even in, in the church. Not necessarily about the Sabbath, but I, I, I specifically remember a dialogue years ago where someone came up to me, it was mentioning, well, the, these, these young people that are, that are coming to church right now are, are dressing immodest and this kind of thing, right? And they were really bothered by this. And, okay, I believe we should dress modestly and, you know, certain situations demand certain amounts of propriety and things like that, whatever. 
But what I told this individual was, oh, you mean this person over here whose parents aren't Christians are to come to church on their own? Or you mean this person over here who doesn't have any kind of background in faith at all but wants to follow Jesus and it is dressed, you know what I mean? It's like you're missing the bigger point. All you see is this person's not dressed properly for a Sunday church service and you forget the fact that, wait a second, this is someone who's coming to Jesus. And here you have a man who's healed and a miracle has happened. It is amazing. People should be shouting the name of Jesus from the rooftops and all they see as, well, he violated the Sabbath. Right? There's, there's a heart problem there. And sometimes we can have that same kind of heart problem. And what I want us to see here, like I have on the screen, is we have two possible responses to every sign that John is giving here. We can either believe or we can reject. We can either celebrate or we can persecute. And that's what we see throughout this book, is that sign after sign, you just have two responses. Either you follow Jesus or you don't, and the people that don't follow Jesus don't not just reject him, they try to destroy him. And that's what we start seeing here. Uh, thoughts about verse 16, then I want to get into what Jesus said in verse 17. Yes. Oh, yeah, they were. They don't like Jesus because he upsets the norm. You know what I mean? They weren't ready to accept him as the Messiah. And even if they didn't believe that he was the Messiah or he's just some kind of teacher or preacher, evangelist of some kind, they don't like the fact that he undermines their credibility. You know what I mean? He flips the status quo a little bit. He changes things around. He makes them feel uncomfortable, and they didn't like that. Yeah, it does. It seems ridiculous. If you're going to get down to now you have a rule on how high you can pick up your bedroll, you're missing the point of following God. And, you know, we can sometimes get silly too, and, but they're missing the point about what's actually happening. They're missing the point of the Sabbath. They're missing the point that a miracle is taking place. All right, so here you have two different possible responses to signs. You can either reject Jesus or you can, you know, accept him. Here they didn't want to accept him because all they could see was the Sabbath day. Verse 17, but he answered them, Jesus talking. He says, my father is working until now and I myself is working. And he throws that phrase out there. Whoa, hold up here, Jesus. Where are you going with this? Because that phrase um, carries a lot of weight with it. So Jesus, as they're challenging him about the Sabbath and all of that, Jesus just makes this passing comment. My father is working until now. Is he working? Yeah, he is. He's working until now all the time. But then he says, and I myself am working. What do you think about that phrase? What are we supposed to get from that? Now you had a comment, right? You've been waiting for this one. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I mean, God is working in the world and doing amazing things. I, I don't, I don't know what, who would deny that, but I guess people sometimes do. I mean, God might handle situations differently in certain things. He's not raising up the Amalekites against me right now, I don't think, but, oh, no, no, no. He just ceased his creating processes when it says that God rested on the seventh day. It wasn't that God is now done doing things. It's, What's that terminology? Is it deism where, like, God just made it go into practice and then backed away from it kind of thing? Like, he's the eternal clockmaker. He just wound it up and let it go. That's not biblical. God is always working and doing his, his thing. I think you lost something out of your Bible, by the way. Um, but here, this is even more because it plays on what Curtis kind of said. Their big complaint was Jesus told the man to pick up his pallet. 
what are you not supposed to do on the Sabbath day? Work. And yet now Jesus says, my father's been working this whole time. And I myself am working. What you going to do about that, right? I mean, it's kind of what he says, right? He goes, my father's been working. I myself am working until now. And they, their heads are, are about to explode right now because he's insulting them about work, which like, no, you can't, no, you ha- can't work on the Sabbath. You get work. And then, but he says the father's working and they know the father's working and they can't deny that. So they're like, well, yeah, I know he's working, but, and he calls God his father, which is totally ticking them off because if you call God your father, you're saying you're the son of God. And we're going to talk about what that means here in a second. This is, <laughs> they are probably so angry, stressed out, and don't know how to respond to this right now. And they did. Because if you look at the next verse, verse 18, it says that for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. It was, they're like, we can't argue against that. You're making us upset. You're saying you're equal with God. All this kind of stuff. I'm going to kill this guy. That's what they came to. That was their solution to this. We must destroy Jesus. And people do that today, too. They, if they don't like what Jesus does, they don't like the demands that Christianity might put on their lives. They don't like the fact that God has the standards of what is right and what is wrong. They want to destroy Jesus, ridicule Jesus, mock Jesus in some way. Even in, in, in maybe programs that we watch on TV, we don't realize it, but there's certain things that have dawned on me that there's a lot of times that people use Jesus for comedic value and things like that. I'm like, no, you know what they're trying to do? Trying to destroy Jesus because they don't like him. And here it says they were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, which you're not supposed to do, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Wow. They don't like that. Because if you're calling God Father, in their mindset, you are saying you're equal to God. I'll get to you in a second, Yvonne. But I had a conversation yesterday. In fact, at the gym, um, a, a young man came up to me. He was asking me questions about, it all started, which you never know how dialogues are going to happen. This was a eight-year-old who asked his dad a question in the car because they drive from Fresno to train with us. And there's a billboard on Highway 99 that says, Jesus is coming soon, right? You ever seen that billboard? And apparently this young man asked his dad what exactly that means. And the dad said, well, I got an idea, but let's ask Cliff. So um, they come up to me and the little boy asked me, what does that mean? So we started talking about it and, and I didn't go into whole details of understanding revelation. I said, basically, God's time frame is different than ours. So I mean, to us, 100 years seems like a really long time. And, but to God, you know, it's not. And we talked about that. But then the conversation kept going into the idea of, was God ever on this earth, and is Jesus God in the flesh? And we started having this whole conversation about spiritual matters. And I went to uh, this idea right here in this verse. Because we, a lot of times, think son of God as creation of God, right? We think, oh, like Owen, Roman, and Xander are my sons. I made them. God didn't make Jesus. Now, the man Jesus on this earth, I guess you could say, was formed and all that, but the pre-existing Jesus always was. I know you can't wrap your mind around that. And that was one of my thoughts with this individual. I said, that's why I think we didn't make up God, because I'd make up a God that I could comprehend. But the idea of son 
represents equality in the first century Jewish mind. Because you're an heir, you get all things. You have all the same power and authority as the father. All of that transfers to the son. Now, to us, we're like, ah, kids are less or whatever. You know, um, they're on their own. You don't get inheritance. But to them, that's a big deal. And if you're calling God father, you are saying you're on equal plane with him. And the only person that can be on an equal plane with God is God. So by saying God your father, you are claiming to be divine. You are claiming to be deity. You are claiming to be God. Yeah, I know Jesus and the Father are not the same, but they're both that eternal God. And the Jewish people didn't like that. And they wanted to kill him for making that statement. Thoughts or comments? If you had your hand up. Yeah? No, they're not backing off and thinking, maybe he's on to something here. They're doubling down on their attacks against him. Yeah? It's on the other hand. Yes, Don. Yeah, there's a couple things you say there. First off, that these are people that should have known. They're the religious leaders. They're the spiritual giants of that community. They should get it. But you know what? Us religious leaders are the worst. Have you ever tried to get preachers to change their mind? We're the most stubborn, self-righteous kind of people you'll ever see. Right? We think we got it all figured out and everybody else must be dumb, which is a problem. Okay? So there's that, which it's really hard to get stubborn religious leaders to change their mind. I mean, we all think we know it all, and we all barely know anything. Um, and then number two, all of us, as Dom mentioned, there's a lesson there because we can get so entrenched in thinking that it has to be a certain way that even when the evidence is right there in front of us, it is cut and dry, it is clear, it is obvious, we are just not willing to accept it. And we just get angry, and that's what they did here. That's the response. I mean, have you ever had a conversation with somebody where you lay out evidence about why they're wrong, they need to change whatever it was, and you can just see the blood boiling, and they know that you're right, but they're not going to accept that you're right, so instead they just get mad. And that's what happens here, yeah. In the sense that, like, furthering God's plan and that kind of thing, there's a lot there to kind of, God knew, and Jesus knew ultimately what was going to happen. But God also doesn't want them to make the poor choice. So that's a whole other question of like, how do we wrap our mind around God's foreknowledge of things? But kind of in a general sense, I believe God knows what choices we are going to make. But that doesn't mean that we still don't have free will to make those choices. How I can wrap my human mind around that, I can't. Because that is more of an infinite thought. How does a mind that knows all stills allow his created to make choices? And the only thing that I can maybe think of, even to somewhat remotely try to illustrate it, would be maybe me with um, a pet. I don't even say children, okay? Because I'm on a whole other level than my dog, okay? Um, hopefully. Um, I have a dog. I want my dog to make good choices. But I know that if I leave food on the table and I tell the dog, hey, I'm going to be gone for a couple days, but I want you to not eat that food. And I, you know that eating that food, the dog looks at me, yeah, yeah, you know, um, that, that food's wrong. You shouldn't get on that table. And I leave. I know for a fact that that dog is going to get on that table and eat that food. The dog made the choice to do it. I didn't make the choice for him. 
but I knew the choice that he was going to make. And, you know, same way with us and just children and things like that. Somehow, God knows all things and has all things part of an eternal plan, but yet the components in the plan still allow free will. I don't know how I can articulate that good, but that's the only way that I can see it. And I think that's a good question, though. Um, God, Jesus and God, they never wanted the Jews to kill him, but God knew that Jesus was going to be killed and die for people. Um, but he would never want them to do that. Yes. Did you ever have another hand, I thought? Okay, you didn't have a hand up for once. Other questions or comments? So they want to kill him because ultimately they're, they're angry with him. And kind of even the Bruce's comment too, Jesus knew that he was going to die and that they were going to kill him, but he purposely picks different battles to kind of prolong his ministry at times too um, because it's not time yet. Um, so that's kind of a neat way of looking at it. So he makes himself equal with God, which is a huge statement, which makes them upset. You can't call yourself the son of God. That's equality with God. And that's hard for us in our English mind because we think son, at least me, I think son is lesser than the father. But they wouldn't. They would not think that because this made him so upset. As Curtis said, this is the most offensive thing he could have said to them. Verse 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son cannot do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. He starts off by saying, look, you don't get it. Father's working, I'm working, me and the father are working together. He's giving them different ways of articulating that he and the father are on the same team. Their work is aligned. They're not separated in what they're doing. See, the Jewish people go, we're following the Father. And Jesus says, no, you're not. Because I am doing the will of the Father. So if you want to follow the Father, follow me. And then he says, and by the way, the Father is going to do some amazing works through the Son, verse 20. And you will marvel, Right? You're going to be amazed. Marvel Comics, right? It's about amazing things. So here he says, you're going to marvel at what is going to happen. And then look what Jesus does. We're going to have to stop here this morning. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Jesus is going to also provide life to people. We're seeing the ability that Jesus has. And he's going to go into a discussion of the resurrection here in the next passage. But it's all this idea is, is, look, if the Father can give life, eternal life, the Son can give eternal life too. Key verse of the book. Many other signs that Jesus do in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe. And that believing you may have life in his name. There's that key word right here. Jesus, because he and the Father are one, is able to give life. We'll stop right there. Did you have a hand up, Curtis? Yeah, he did a sign. He healed this man. And now we have a discussion of life. He's his own witness. Yeah, making his own case for the fact that he is the son of God. Very good point. 
So yeah, witness after witness, but Jesus is the best one. Yeah. Yeah, it is a, a living example of a, I mean, obviously, a father's not God and that kind of thing, but, but a healthy dynamic that the, the missions are the same. There's alignment in, in that home and that kind of thing. Yeah, very neat point. Well, we're going to stop right here. Um, we'll pick up next week, and then the week after that, we're going to have a substitute teacher in here. I'm going to be out of town taking my kids to a youth event in Oklahoma. Um, but, um, and then I'll be back after that, but you are dismissed about 15 minutes. We'll come back in here for worship. Thanks again for listening to West Visalia audio. We hope these messages have helped you grow and inspired you to take action. Be sure to check in each week for more on the go content or visit our YouTube channel to watch the live video. Thanks for participating and God bless.